SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive science knowledge showcase. I'm your host, Hank Green, and joining me this week, as always, is science expert and Forbes 30 Under 30 education luminary, Sari Riley! Hello! And our resident everyman, Sam Schultz. Uh, hi. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. Okay. Tell me the name of your pet, and then the name that you ended up calling your pet. <laughs> oh, Lilu and Lilu. I don't. I don't oh, mess yeah? around with those alternate names. You don't have like a Luli Lau or anything. Nope. You don't call her. You don't call her Lilu Dallas Multipath. Sometimes we used to call her that more often than we do now. She's just Lilu now. She's transcended that reference, and it's purely just Lilu. But I I understand the compulsion. My brother's name is Will, and we call him Wilbur. And sometimes we call him Birdman because it's Wilbur turned into Bird turned into. Birdman. Birdman. Okay, so you you don't have a story for your pet, but you do for your brother. More accurate, yeah. (laughs) Our cat's name is Inky, which is also Mm -hmm. something that you'd just say, and it has the same cadence as Lilo, but we call her so many different things. Stinko, Mm -hmm. Bug, Bean. We have a subset of nicknames when she's being a gremlin in particular ways. So sometimes we call her Grem for gremlin, for short. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Uh we call her Dennis when she's being a menace. Sometimes we call her Marvin so when she's cute. starving. <laughs> oh, oh, no. And so she's got so many names, but they change depending on her behavior. She earns oh, a title yeah. almost. She's a diff- almost a different animal. Yeah, different at time. all moments of the day. Whether we <laughs> when she's doing being great, oh Inky, you're being so cute. When she's mm-hmm. being a gram stinko stinko menace <laughs> yeah stinko the <laughs> grams over there yeah i have two cats i have we have our new cat chester who already he's gone from chester to chester cheese to just cheese mm. i think maybe it was chester cheetah first it was chester sense. to chester cheetah to, che- to chester cheese mm-hmm. and now just cheese we call him mostly we call him cheese 
at this point. <laughs> not really yeah. a cat name. And then we have Gummy Bear, who is, we went from Gummy, we call him Gum and Gummy and Gumball and Gums. And when one day we came home from something and my son opened the door because Gummy Bear is always there when you open the door when you're coming home. Just sitting there. And Orin said, the expected gums. <laughs> and so we call him the expected gums. That's really good. The expected gums and cheese yeah. sounds like the best, like, buddy cartoon yeah. characters. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine also walked by Gummy Bear this morning. And he was, like, hanging his arm off the cat tower like cats do. <laughs> and Catherine looked at Gummy Bear said, piggy dipping, ham hock, ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> which are all things that we say when he does that. We call it Piggy Dippin, which is a reference to an online video. And then Ham Hock came from us. And then Ding Dong was our old cat when she would hang her tail off the tower. Uh. We'd pull on it and go Ding Dong until we just had to say Ding Dong and she would lift her tail up without <laughs> us having to touch like it. it. <laughs> she didn't want it to happen. <laughs> and I was like, did you just say... Did you just say piggy dip and a ham hock ding dong? <laughs> She's like I was I didn't think you were there. <laughs> <laughs> we call that chicken wing behavior. Cats are so good. <laughs> Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts while also trying to stay on topic. Our panelists are playing for glory and for Hank Bucks, the currency in this podcast, which I have not mentioned outside of this intro for at least over a year, according to Eve. <laughs> Hank Bucks. It has become quite abstract, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be awarded as we play it at the end of the episode. One of them will be crowned the winner. So, as always, we're going to introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sarah. Usually foods are pretty cut and dry. A potato's a potato, a fry's a fry. And you mm. get kind of weird in the noodle zone or a chocolate versus a blueberry scone. But usually you sort of know what you're eating, except for cheese, which can be quite deceiving. You might get a gooey processed square that melts on toasty bread or a hard grainy slice from a big old wheel that weighs seven times your head, a soft <laughs> stringy lump that's stretched from curds or a pillowy thickened whey, or a funky cube that reeks of feet or has ribbons of blue-gray. Then there's sprays and cans or shredded blends or neon dust to try. And lest yeah. we forget the cheese in quotes with nary a dairy inside. <laughs> but it'd behoove us all to learn a few names of the hundreds or thousands vying for fame to help us with confidence say yes, please, when presented with a board of mystery cheese. Cheese! Beautiful. This is the topic of the day. Like my cat. And you've you've already let slip that it's not easy to define what a cheese is. Mm, I thought you were going to tell us that a lot of those things weren't technically cheeses, but they are all indeed cheeses. It's not actually that hard to name what a cheese is. Is is easy cheese cheese? I think it's a cheese product. Cheese Whiz has has dairy in it. I think usually, I think a lot of the processed huh. cheeses, so spreadable cheese, cheese Whiz, whatnot. What we used to call in college. Uh, regular cheese, which was Kraft American <laughs> Singles. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Usually there's some sort of, well, I guess it depends. There's some sort of cheese percentage of it, just less than buying a hunk of cheese. So it's like, it takes, you take some cheddar and then you add a bunch of additives to make it uh-huh. more spreadable, sprayable, dustable. Or floppable. Mm. I mean, I calling it American cheese is the greatest insult our nation has ever <laughs> received <laughs> also all of the other nations too like we call it american cheese that means south america they have to, to some extent well. must feel responsible which they definitely are not they didn't have anything to do with it that's united states cheese <laughs> where was it invented huh oh, it was definitely invented in america it was invented in a laboratory at craft headquarters james l craft patented the method it was probably some guy and then he was like i invented this yeah, this <gasps> this is really the cheese that built a billion dollar corporation right here. He was Canadian. <gasps> <laughs> Canadian cheese. Canadian this cheese. is the biggest news that has ever been discovered on SciShow Tangent. <laughs> <laughs> is he Canadian? Canada is North America. That's true, but we yeah, all but know that's what, not they, what you mean. We all know what they mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he immigrated to Buffalo, New York in 1902 from uh, Ontario, Canada. 
famous American Canadian craft cheese man. His actually first name is Kraft, his last name is Cheeseman. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Sari, what's cheese? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, it the thing is weird milk. Weird milk. <laughs> uh, basically it's a cheese describes the process of making cheese. And so you take a milk product, milk, uh-huh. cream, skim milk, buttermilk, some combination. Yeah. Coagulate it with uh-huh. some sort of coagulating agent. Um, in some yeah. cases, that is an acid. Um, so like paneer cheese is is by adding mm. an acid to milk. A lot of times it is um, mm. enzymes that we add to it. Some of the original cheese is... Um, made using rennet, which is a substance within the stomachs of ruminant babies. So like baby cows, baby sheep, um, baby goats. Wild. Are they okay when we get it from them? Uh, I think Mm. they're probably not. Oh, no. Okay. We eat their meat and then we use their stomachs. But the reason they have it is because milk usually goes through your system pretty quick, but they have natural coagulants so that when they drink milk from their parents and get it in their tummies, it coagulates Mm -hmm. so it lasts longer and they can Mm -hmm. extract more nutrients from it because that's like the whole thing that ruminants do is have stuff hang around in their stomachs for a while. And so at some point, humans probably stored milk in a stomach as a sack because it's Uh, also like nature's a handbag is a stomach <laughs> uh, when, when it's outside the body. <laughs> and then it started coagulating. And then if you remove the liquid or you can remove some portion of the liquid and compress the solid stuff, then the solid stuff is technically cheese. At that point, that's cheese. At that point, it's cheese. Even if there's some whey mixed in, like cottage cheese is a mixture of curds and whey. Cottage cheese. If you, if you glopped a gloop of cottage cheese, and I didn't know what that was... And I ate it. I would not say that's cheese. Yeah, you might be in the looking in the yogurt family, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I get, I, I can see it. Like it tastes cheesy, but I like, I don't know. I feel like a cheese needs to hold its shape. And that's why cheese is so tricky to pin down. It's, it's like there's soft, soft cheeses, hard cheeses, spready cheeses, Mm-mm. stinky cheeses, sweet cheeses. Right. I feel like that's actually kind of a pretty specific definition. As long as you take out mm-hmm. the things that have quotation marks around it. Then cheese, cheese products have cheese in them. And cheese is a thing that is like the solids left over after coagulation or whatever you called it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> coagulation. Yes. Okay. The curds. But then I don't know. I see now I'm poking holes in my own. I fell down such a rabbit hole trying to define cheese is tofu cheese because no. it's made from soy it's milk, not, coagulated, and oh, then Oh, that's pressed. not milk. We know what we mean <laughs> when we say milk. Yeah. That's milk with quotation marks around it. I think I agree with Hank, though, in that this is not a complicated or tricky definition at all. I think it's it just comes that, in yeah, different I, flavors, you know? It's I like, think Sarah's very brave for having br- having brought is tofu cheese into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's not. There's <laughs> a whole I, section at the grocery store where all the cheese goes. That makes it pretty easy yeah. to figure it out. Well, that actually, because I w- I am going to completely make the case that Kraft Canadian cheese is not cheese. <laughs> well, that, it's got, hmm. It's not made in the way that Sarah said. It's got said, cheese huh? in it, just like yeah. my sandwich does. Like pizza isn't cheese. And so <laughs> okay. Kraft Canadian this, cheese is not cheese. This is right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I'm so mad about it being Canadian. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like he no. earned it. It doesn't feel like we earned it. Just no, feels yeah, un- exactly. just feels bad. It's misattribution. Mm-hmm. And I think if it was called Canadian cheese, everybody would treat it nicer and be more respectful of it. In my opinion, maybe it would treat us nicer and be more respectful of us. That and that too. It would be the most polite cheese. <laughs> is the in Canadian our tummies, cheese. be a little bit kinder as it goes down yeah. with yeah. the yeah. the grilled. You know, cheese. I bet it has. It probably has less lactose than most cheese. So maybe it is a it little bit of a, a kinder, kinder cheese in the old belly. So where did the word cheese come from? <laughs> um, so the word cheese comes from the Latin word caseus, um, which is where oh, the word casein queso. comes from. Oh, and oh yeah, and queso and all these cool. words. Like casein is the proteins that are found yeah. in mammalian milk. That is like about 80% of the proteins in cow's milk. So etymologically makes sense. But it also gave rise to the words cheese. I think they were basically pronounced the same way in Old mm-hmm. English. Hmm. Um, but before the Latin, 
The linguists are duking it out with each other. Some of them think that it comes from a Proto-Indo-European root of quat, to ferment or to become sour. And another person is like, there's no way Latin has Q sounds in it. So there's no way we could have dropped the the qua to turn Uh it into cheese from there. So... I don't know. I'm not painting it very dramatically, but in the article... <laughs> you built it up the, a lot more than it turned out to be, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I guess in linguist terms, this is pretty much of a dig of no etymology can be found, which does not require some poorly founded assumptions, which I think was the, the person who thinks it's unknown making mm-hmm. a dig at the, the fermentation. Brutal. That is, that Fatality. Is the, that is the trick with all yeah. of these words that we made up. We stinky cheese people or not stinky cheese people? What are we thinking? I'm not a stinky cheese person, though. I am I am not a stinky cheese man. I am a mild lad. I'm a, <laughs> I don't like I'm spice. A, I don't like flavor. <laughs> I'm a big time stinky cheese man. I've realized recently that my favorite cuisine is like what Wario or the Grinch would eat, where it's like oh, wow. very garlic heavy, very mm. tangy, vinegar, that kind of just nasty yeah. flavors. I love it so much. I think that growing up, to be, I mean, Gargamel's a very unhappy man. But I think that you could grow up to be a happy Gargamel, you know? Who doesn't want to kill Smurfs for a living? Well, yeah. Why can't I just be Wario or the Grinch? They both are happy. I don't know if Wario is happy. I think he's very happy. He seems happy. He he's seems, always smiling. He seems happy, but like angry about it. Yeah. yeah. You could be that's happy right. and angry. Happy isn't the opposite of angry. Yep. That's right. True. Yeah. He's like a gleeful, gleeful. He's a gleeful man. Gargamel. anyway that's not the thing that we're going to do for our game show today instead of that we're going to be playing the secret ingredient of course we are it's cheese day one of the incredible things about cheese is how many variations we have come upon with the same basic premise over time that ingenuity means that seemingly unusual ingredients like fungi mites and maggots have become part of long-standing traditions in the world of cheese. So today, we're going to be highlighting some of the strange ingredients of cheese in a game of secret ingredient. I will describe a type of cheese to you, but I will leave out one of the ingredients that makes the cheese what it is. And I'll give you three options for what the secret ingredient is, and it's up to you to figure out which one it is. Makes sense So you actually get multiple choice, this secret ingredient, which is going to make it less difficult. Are you ready? Yes. Yeah. Our first cheese on the menu is Cornish Yarg, a cheese based on a 17th century recipe. That's real. I didn't make it up. That was rediscovered and adapted by a group of cheesemakers in Cornwall. This semi-hard cheese is made from cow's milk and has a distinct mushroom flavor. But what's particularly notable is a very local ingredient that is used to make its rind, which not only acts as the rind itself, but also provides the mushroom flavor and enzymes needed to mature the cheese. What is the secret ingredient? Is it A, lichen that grows on the Cornish cliffside, B, stinging nettles from the Cornish countryside, or C, sand taken from Cornish beaches? Lichen seems the most mushroomy, doesn't it? But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, lichen's got fungi in it. So this is like in the rind or the whole rind is made out of this or you don't know. I think that it, the, the rind is made out of this. Okay, okay. And sand. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go with sand because that sounds like a cool sand. story that I'd like to hear. I don't know why that would taste like mushrooms. I would avoid the rind of a cheese that was rinded in sand. That's for sure. That's mm-hmm. true. And yeah, sometimes you sample the rind. It. That's, that would yeah, be a big mistake. It. I would be mad if I didn't go with the obvious one. I think it's lichen. I think you can pat that into a basket-ish shape and pour in cheese. Well. Cornish Yarg is named for Alan Gray. Do you know why or how? Uh, you just said a lot of words. Uh. <laughs> I'll get to the answer, but first, it's named for Alan Gray. How is Cornish Yarg named for Alan Gray? Oh, backwards Yarg is backwards, backwards of Gray. Backwards mm. Yarg. <laughs> <laughs> so he found he found an old book called Engl- The English Housewife, and it can- oh. contained instructions on various tasks, including how to make a number of cheeses. One of the recipes included a cheese matured on a bed of stinging nettles, though there weren't a lot of specifics on how to make this cheese. And Gray started testing out different versions of the recipe and created Cornish Yarg, eventually selling his recipe to another farmer that further tinkered with the recipe. 
because of course we got to give everybody credit for the invention of this cheese. <laughs> uh, the nettles did ingredient in, in, like ended up being an important part of the recipe, and cheesemakers who've worked on it have tested out different uh, aspects of the nettles, like how much should be used and how to wrap the mold and uh, not the fungus mold, but the mold that is molded inside of the nettles keep the cheese protected in a breathable coating that allows for specific molds to get attracted into the cheese and the nettles are also gathered from the cornwall countryside in the summer and then cleaned and frozen so that they can be used throughout the year Uh, and the cheese is in the nettles for about five weeks while it matures i think my problem there was that i had no idea what stinging nettles were i was picturing like birds you know like no, like Saint, like like uh, the oh. things that get stuck on your shirt, like when you walk oh, past sure, a specific sure. plant, you know. It's just yeah. a yeah, it's a leafy plant, but they do. It is very stingy. I hate them. They make you real puffy looking. It looks like in 2022, the BBC reported that the most expensive cheese in the world is Pule, a Siberian cheese. <laughs> It sounds like I'm making it up. <laughs> named after named after Pierre. A loop. Uh, no, uh, it's the Siberian cheese that became famous when the tennis player Novak Djokovic reportedly bought the entire stock from the one farm that produces it. The color was yellowish, and the BBC reporter sent to try it so that it tasted sweet, clean, and mild. According to Cheese.com, Puel sells for about $576 per pound, a heavy price that results from the fact that the source of milk is not particularly bountiful. What animal produces milk for Puel? Is it yak, donkey, or deer? Oh, well, deer are always running all over the place around. You can't pin them down to milk them. So I think there wouldn't be a lot of deer Mm. milk, and that's my guess, is a deer. I think a yak just stand there and let you milk it. I'm going to guess donkey because it kind of sounds like mule. As a luxury item, you say this is made of the finest deer milk. You know a rich person's going to be like, well, don't mind if I do. Donkey milk? Shrek really skyrocketed donkey fame, though, I feel like. Mm. It's not <laughs> For the rich and Shrek. famous? Yeah. 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 <laughs> He's a tastemaker. Yeah. Which donkey is this from, precisely? The one that made babies with a dragon or a regular donkey? Very luxurious. <laughs> Only one. Rare dragon donkey. Yeah. yeah. Expensive cheese. <laughs> Actual answer, dragon. No, donkey. You're correct. Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> the recipe is a secret, but one of the few things we know about it is that it's made using the milk from Balkan donkeys, which is a tough ingredient because while it takes about 25 liters <clears throat> of their milk to make one kilogram of the cheese, a female donkey, a female donkey will only make <laughs> around 300 milliliters of milk per day. On top of the low milk yield that comes from working with donkeys, donkey's <laughs> milk is tough to use for cheese because it has a low amount of casein. So to uh, use their milk for the cheese, it needs to be mixed with goat's milk. Cheese is 60% donkey milk and 40% goat's milk. Ah, uh, this cheese doesn't sound very exciting to me. seems like it's only expensive because that one guy bought it all. Well, here's what it makes me think. I want to eat like every cheese. I want to eat cheese yeah. made from every mammal's milk. Agreed. Except people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. Once okay. you get done with all the rest of them, don't you think you'll be like... I, I guess, guess I have you're to. Right. I guess it's yeah, time. Working on my blog, <laughs> and it's just like I don't have anything else to post. I guess it's the I last one. All right. So someone has a point now, and that person is Sari. Next question: Emmental—that's a normal cheese I've heard of—is mm-hmm. a popular Swiss cheese made from cow's milk that's often found in fondue and cheese plates. There are different varieties of Emmental, and the flavor itself can change based on how long you age it. And sometimes what matters is not just what you put in the cheese or how long it's aged, but what the cheese is surrounded by. In 2018, a Swiss cheesemaker wanted to test a theory he had about Emmental aging, so he collaborated with the University of the Arts in Bern on his theory what did they do to the cheese's surroundings as the cheese matured? A, they kept the cheese in rooms painted different colors. What? B, they aged the cheese in containers with different fabric interiors. Or C, they played different genres of music to the cheese. Well, I feel like the colors would do absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Light I've, on the cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Unless there's like something that was really photosensitive in it fabric you're touching the cheese so any sort of stuff could get in there that seems too obvious kind of though 
Oh, yeah, because you're just, like, dunking it. Like, maybe a cheese recipe would already say, gotta use this fabric, and everybody would just be like, whatever. Makes sense mm-hmm. to me. Speaking of fabric and food, did you know that the uh, this is becoming a widely known fact now, which is amazing? <laughs> First pink lemonade was made pink by in putting into the lemonade a circus performer's tights. Oh. <laughs> is what? that true? Yeah. I feel like I read it somewhere <laughs> in like one of those hundred fact books that I now know not to bring up. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. Trivia knowledge from that one turns out to have been accurate. The oh, per- so person who made pink lemonade, not to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the music one. I think I music. Got I feel right. compelled. I think I'm also going to go with the music. It feels like an art student thing to do. Well, Swiss cheesemaker Beat Wampfler. His name is Beat Wampfler, <laughs> and his collaborators at the university ran their experiment using nine 22-pound che- wheels of cheese, which were kept for six months in their own wooden crates in a cheese cellar, and each cheese was hooked up to a mini transducer, which sends sound waves directly into the cheese. From there, the cheese was uh, stuck listening to a 24-hour loop of one song. The group tried out music from different genres. They had the Magic Flute from Mozart. They had Stairway to Heaven from Led Zeppelin. They had Monolith from Yellow. I don't know what that is. I don't know they that got one. jazz. They played some hip hop. They played a tribe called Quest, and they played techno by Vril, which I'm sure is an artist of electronic music <laughs> as controls there was a cheese left to listen to silence which i now feel bad for That's for some reason cheese, yeah. and three cheeses that were stuck listening to a tone that was either high medium or low frequency the idea is that the sound waves like travel through the cheese bodies uh mm-hmm. and the only test of this experiment really focused on were taste tests they gave it to food technologists and a panel of culinary experts to judge in a blind taste test and in general the hip hop's cheese seemed to have the strongest flavors. Wow. That's a perfect name for a guy who's playing music to cheese, specifically. Because his first name's Beat, right? His first name's Beat. And his mm-hmm. last name is Wampfer, which sounds like the noise that comes out of the, the speaker when you're listening to Vril. <laughs> through yeah. womp, through womp, a bunch womp. of cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'd try some out, but I don't think that it would be worth it. Next up, we're going to take a short break, and then the fact off. Special Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. 
SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. All right, everybody, welcome back. Sari's in the lead with two to Sam's one. Now it's time for the fact off. Our panelists have brought science facts to present to me in an attempt to blow my mind, and after they... I've uh, presented their facts. I will judge them and award my Hank bucks anywhere I see fit. But to decide who goes first, I have a trivia question. The Washington State University Creamery produces a canned white cheddar cheese called Cougar Gold, mm. which has been around <laughs> since the 1940s. I love cheese names. They're so good. <laughs> Every one of them sounds made up. Uh, and it was produced to send troops overseas. Creating a canned cheese was a challenge because the bacteria inside cheese produced carbon dioxide, which would explode the cans. So the inventors of Cougar Gold were able to assemble a new bacteria culture that produced less CO2. The result is a cheese that can be stored for quite a while. In 2010, the parents of a former Washington State University alumna called the creamery to let them know that they were driving through with a can of Cougar Gold that might have been one of the oldest unopened cans at the time. How old? Was that can of cheese? Uh, 55 years. Sarah's going with 55, 55 years old. <sighs> What's the maximum amount? Uh, like, so like 70, <laughs> just as old. It was the first can of, that rolled off the, the canning thing. Well, you know, it's going to sound less impressive now that I've set it all up, but 22, 23 years, 23 <laughs> year care. old can of cheese. If they called me, I'd say, throw it away. I don't yeah. want to see it. I don't need that. That cheese is from the 90s or something. Is that right? Yeah. No, it's from the tw- well, 2000s. No, it's even. from the 2000s. That's, I don't care the, about this cheese. It was 1987. That's the year I was born. So I'd say, bring me the cheese, actually. This is exciting cheese. Do you guys know about cup of cheese? No. Or you fart this... in your hand and then you put it on someone's face and you oh, say, cup no. of cheese. Hank. I didn't like that. <laughs> Don't say stuff like that. I, the first time I ever saw someone do cup of cheese in real life, I was like, that's the best Ugh. thing I've ever seen. That's disgusting. And I was a grown man. I was like 30 years old. If you ever do that to me, I'm never talking to you again. Oh, I would never do it to a person, but I did watch Lee Newton do it to Joe Beretta and I it was very, I was very happy. Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, the, the cheese was stamped uh, October 9th, 1987, and the can of cheese had been given to uh, the couple by their daughter, and they had just kept it around, thinking that they would one day have that cheese. We all have that can of cheese. Absolutely. Well, you don't see us calling the factory and saying, I got <laughs> such old beans. Yeah. The cheese uh, was opened, <laughs> which seems like it's... <laughs> Bad decision. And it was a little more dry than it usually would be, but overall, it still tasted pretty good, according to the people who put it in their literal human mouths. <laughs> How weird, eh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that means that Sarah gets to go first. That was a long question. <laughs> so humans experience a whole range of emotions, and one of the trickier parts of being a neuroscientist or psychologist is studying the bad-feeling ones, like pain or anger or disgust. You want to make sure people consent to being made uncomfortable, and some of these sensations can veer on being dangerous. Our understanding of disgust, for example, is that it's a distancing response where you feel nauseated or your body might be trying to protect itself from a toxin or potential infection or something you're allergic to. So it's not the most ideal or ethical research methodology to study disgust by exposing subjects to like moldy Tupperware or sewage. And it's hard to find something that's both easy to access and universally disgusting because people have all different cultural contexts. But there is a food that is both polarizing and completely safe as long as you're not eating a 23-year-old can of it, which is cheese. 
And part of that is because cheese comes in so many different varieties, including ones with really strong odors and funky flavors that people either love or love to hate. So there was a study published in October 2016 called the Neural Bases of Disgust for Cheese, an fMRI study, where researchers conducted several different experiments on cheese and disgust. Their main one was comparing the brains of people who liked cheese and people who didn't um, and who were disgusted by it as they smelled it and looked at pictures of cheese. So they got 15 participants who liked cheese, didn't have to love it, just like it. 15 participants who didn't like cheese or were disgusted by it um, and made sure that their noses were working and they weren't sick at the time of their study. Um, it <laughs> does not seem like they asked whether any of these participants were lactose intolerant or not, at least that I could find in their methodology. It would have been a question that I might have asked, but maybe they did. They just didn't write about it or I missed it. And while their brains were getting scanned using fMRI, um, which is functional magnetic resonance imaging, which basically measures how blood is moving in your brain. And it's a pretty standard technique to estimate which reason, regions are active at a certain time. They had people smell 12 different things, six different cheeses. Uh, so blue cheese, cheddar cheese, goat cheese, gruyere, parmesan, and tome. Tome? That's the only one I haven't heard of. And six non-cheese foods. Cucumber, fennel, mushroom, pate, peanut, and pizza. Seems like a very broad cross-section of non-cheese foods. Peanut. And what they found is that what they called the anti-cheese people had stronger activation in some parts of the basal ganglia region of the brain than the pro-cheese people. Specifically, um, these regions called the globulus pallidus and the substantia nigra. And these regions are usually associated with reward pathways. And so what's weird is they seem like they're also involved in these anti-reward disgust behaviors as well. So the same regions that are saying, yes, you want this, are also saying even more strongly, no, you don't want this. And then plus, the ventral pallidum, which is a brain region that helps us process and move forward with behaviors that we're motivated to do, was significantly less active in the people who were disgusted by cheese than those who liked it. Mm -hmm. So the desire to want or eat or act was somehow suppressed in their brains when they smelled or looked at a picture of cheese. They were like, ooh. So there aren't any like sweeping conclusions here because it's a small study, but I like this yeah. idea that uh, like it's hard to ethically study disgust, and so how do you right. do it? Cheese, cheese. Think them up with some cheese. <laughs> Brain studies are always so weird because it's like, can't I tell you why I don't want the cheese? Mm-hmm. Like, no, you can't. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we need to we need to put you in a very expensive machine and <laughs> figure out where the blood is in your brain while you're smelling cheese, and then. Those regions are only, we only know what they do because of other studies where they had people yeah. look at other things that they liked mm-hmm. or didn't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so we're all just guessing. I'll just, I'll we, just probably. All, yeah. So there's definitely, so, there, there is plenty of insight to be gleaned by being the actual thing experiencing the sensation. Because I think that when I smell a cheese that I don't like the smell of, it's because it smells like things I wouldn't want to put in my mouth. Hmm. Like feet. Sometimes it smells like feet. That's okay. Sometimes it's, yeah. But that's, that is true. Sometimes it smells like feet and I'm like, that smells like feet, yeah. but that's okay. And then sometimes it smells like feet and I'm like, that smells like feet, but too much. Wrong kind like, of feet. Too stinky of feet. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Every cheese has a little bit of funk. Mm-hmm. Except for craft Canadian cheese. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it just has that glossy texture of silly putty. Sam, what you got for me? Emeryville, California, home to companies Mm. such as Pixar, Cliff Bar, and Pete's Coffee. This booming city nestled in California's Silicon Valley is a modern economic powerhouse. But this isn't the first time that Emeryville's been a modern, booming economic powerhouse. Being Mm -hmm. situated on San Francisco Bay and filled with train yards, Emeryville became a manufacturing center, like starting from when it first was founded. Paint, car, and train parts, rubber, canning. It was all in Emeryville, baby. But being a manufacturing center comes with some ugly side effects, chief among them being industrial waste. Corporations tend not to be the best stewards of the land, especially in the early 20th century when most of this manufacturing was happening, so that waste would end up dumped in the ocean or on the ground, either accidentally, intentionally, 
or maybe a little bit of both. So by the 70s, manufacturing was moving out of the U.S., and mostly all that was left in Emeryville was empty buildings and various toxic wastes that manufacturing left behind. So much so that a Slate article I read while researching this said that green goo would sometimes seep out of the ground when uh, Emeryville, like when people were building stuff in Emeryville on construction sites, they dig, green Mm. goo would come out. So in the 80s, the EPA moved in and started spending money to clean stuff up, either through Superfund sites or grants to smaller programs. And one of those smaller programs is where cheese enters the picture. But first, I got to talk about chrome plating, which is a process that I don't entirely <laughs> understand, <laughs> where a metal object is placed in a solution of chromium, uh, which is a hard, rust-proof, shiny element, to plate that object in chromium, thus making the object hard, shiny, and rust-proof. The type hmm. of chromium used in electroplating is called hexavalent chromium, which is really water-soluble, but it's also a dangerous carcinogen and, and yeah, really good at sounds, seeping into bad. groundwater, which makes it a high-priority chemical for the EPA when it comes to cleaning stuff up. And in Emeryville, there's a parcel of land uh that used to be home to a chrome plating factory. And even though there weren't any major reported spills of hexavalent chromium from the factory, the soil was still rotten with the stuff and it was seeping into the groundwater, which is not good. In 2004, a project was funded to clean the land uh, and three solutions were proposed. The first was to wait for the chromium to break down, which would take like forever, I think. The second was to dig up and incinerate all of the contaminated dirt, which was crazy expensive. And the third was to pump 15,000 gallons of cheese whey into the ground and the cheese was the answer so while hexavalent chromium is super soluble trivalent chromium is not because of electrons i think or something yeah so the more Mm -hmm. electrons that are available to chromium the more likely it is to take its trivalent form which are more stable and less toxic and soluble than hexavalent and something with a whole lot of electrons to give apparently is organic soil matter created by the life processes of soil dwelling bacteria so just like probiotic yogurt helps uh, the bacteria in your belly the cheese way which was pumped into the ground via several wells helped bacteria in this contaminated soil flourish poop and breathe and do all that stuff to make organic compounds that expedited the trivalentization of the chromium (laughs) and really i think they could have pumped any pumpable food into the ground probably like yogurt or whatever like you know like your belly but cheese way was picked because it was really cheap and there was a place really close that was making lots of cheese way so they said why not however much to my extreme frustration i couldn't actually find like a newer article than 2004 basically about this and how it worked out But this is a process that's used in other soil remediation efforts uh, where it's reduced hazardous chemicals by up to 90% in three months. But if you you are somebody who pumped cheese into the ground in Emeryville, California in 2004, please contact us and tell us if it worked. I love that. I don't. How do they get the cheese in the ground? They just had a big tank and they drilled a bunch of holes and they put hoses in it and they pumped it into the ground. And I want to see it's it like, so bad. I was going to say, you said that it was because of electrons. And I was going to say, well, that you could say that up for everything. But mm, Sari's mm-hmm. kind of like, I was like, you probably said that for serious factor. Then I was like, not really. Like, MRIs are one of the few things that's actually about protons. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, electrons aren't that involved in MRIs, which is wild. Very unusual. But. Ultimately, if I'm going to choose and I have to, I got to go with the ch- just pumping a bunch of cheese <laughs> into the ground. <laughs> Hank, will you send me around to super fun sites all over the world or all over the country? Oh, that would be an amazing show. I could be yeah. super fun, Sam. I could say, super wow. Fun super fun, Sam. Sam. Yeah. And it'd be, did you say super fun? <laughs> no, I didn't say super fun. <laughs> Unfortunately, Unfortunately, really not. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Sam. I'll say five Hank bucks for that, and Sari, I'll give three. Are we tied? I think you win, Sam. Oh, you're right. I had one from the first game. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that means that it's time to ask the science couch, where we we ask a listener question to our couch of finely honed scientific minds. Red Locker on Discord asked, what makes cheese addictive to humans? Is it some part of the cheese itself or my own developing sense of self-control? I mean, I think that the 
thing that makes cheese addictive is the fact that it's got sugar and fat in it and salt. And that's what we want. We want sugar and fat and salt. But that is there something special about cheese that makes it that this question's referring to, or is that just anything? I don't that's know. Like there's there's ongoing conversation about addictiveness and food, but you kind of can't like we probably shouldn't be talking about food as addictive, but right. certainly you can that uh, you can develop uh, a thing where you are have an unhealthy relationship. And also, there is a thing where there are certain foods that we eat more than we otherwise would because of their, like the, their flavor mostly, like because mm-hmm. of the things that they're made up of. And you can sort of design a food to be the right mix of salty, fat, and sweet. And you're like, I ate a bag of Doritos just now, and I loved it. So I think the root of this question, or the root of a lot of the is cheese addictive phrasing. There was a bunch of like popular science articles that came out around the year 2015 because there was a study published called Which Foods May Be Addictive? The Roles of Processing, Fat Content, and Glycemic Load. And so the study came in two, two parts. One where they surveyed 120 undergraduates at the University of Michigan. And two, they found 398 participants on Mechanical Turk, which is the Amazon product where you can get paid like 50 cents, five cents, whatever, for answering a question. They basically gave these people surveys about what foods made them feel like they couldn't stop eating or like they Mm. regretted it afterwards. And they mapped Mm -hmm. those feelings onto like food, quote unquote, food addiction. Like Hank was saying, that's not really the most accurate way to describe it. Like addiction is a very specific set of criteria when it comes to certain drugs or toxins like alcohol or things like that, that psychologically you become dependent on food. You need it to survive. Like you need to eat. Uh, yeah. And so you can get cravings for things and maybe there's like complicated emotions around certain foods. And this is why I think we talk about it as addiction because you have the same, a lot of the same pathways in the brain, like the reward pathways. But I think that it's mostly like, we need to like, we, you don't want to talk about food addiction because food is necessary and is like, and and is a normal part of life. Unlike, you know, cigarettes or alcohol or gambling or something. And and the findings from the study as they hypothesize, which is like highly processed foods with added fat, refined carbohydrates, and additional salt appeared to be most associated with these like behavioral indicators. So like the top ranked mm-hmm. foods, one through nine were chocolate, ice cream, french fries, pizza, cookie, singular, chips, plural, cake, popcorn, <laughs> buttered, cheeseburger. And that was like- Ooh, great they, foods. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Great foods. Um, and so all, a lot of studi- <laughs> like articles were like, oh, cheese. Like cheese is Canadian cheese singles. Canadian craft singles <laughs> are all these things, are like these highly processed foods. And so like you're, you're addicted to cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like not what the study was saying. And it's kind of a classic case right. of, especially in the nutrition space, I think people like to make sweeping conclusions about what other people should or shouldn't eat. Like a subset of this, the rabbit hole that I fell down is this idea that casein, that milk protein, that is like 80% of the proteins in cow's milk. When you metabolize casein, and there's several different types of casein, um, but specifically like one of them that's found in cow's milk turns into a compound called casomorphin. And casomorphins are a class of compound that fall into the category of opioids. Um, and because it's an opioid, then of course, people make that connection almost immediately mm-hmm. of opioid addiction. The problem is, is like the opioid system in your body exists as it is. Like neurotransmitters, your brain naturally makes our opioids that enable communication between your neurons help your body communicate things like pain or pleasure or memory or like the movements of your digestive system, contractions and um, like constipation or diarrhea, like all of those are opioids. Um, And so it makes sense that a digested compound from milk, which is also something that's in the human body, would then interact with the opioid system because you have to digest the food. And there's a wave of people who are in like the nutrition space who are like, we're going to try and link casomorphins or there's evidence that casomorphins are linked to diabetes and heart attacks and like too much eating cheese um, or dairy products in general. Whereas the reviews, I found one from 20, 2009 from the European Food Safety Authority 
and one from 2023 from like a Sao Paulo, New Zealand team where they're just like, we don't know. Like we haven't studied casomorphin in humans enough. And like, sure, if you isolate a bunch of it and inject it into animals, then it Mm -hmm. will, you might see signs of addictive behaviors or like weird biological effects, but that's because it's such a wildly high concentration and injected directly into the bloodstream. Um, But we don't know how it interacts in humans. And also the people who are having digestive problems because of it or health problems because of it might just be like lactose intolerant. Like let's consider that maybe. (laughs) One thing I have, have learned about uh, human bodies doing research on cancer is that we are really good, really good at processing chemicals in our bodies and like dealing with them way better than I think most people assume, even like obvious carcinogens like uranium in the air. Like our bodies are fairly good at dealing with. And I'm like, if I, if we could do that, <laughs> not that there's a lot of uranium in the air. I mean, people who are like downwind of accidents and yeah, disasters. <laughs> Super fun, Sam. Inhaling all that fine. uranium. <laughs> yeah. I'll be okay when I'm out there on the, on the job site. If you want to ask the science couch, your question, follow us on Twitter uh, and on threads at SciShow Tangents, where we will be sending out topics for upcoming episodes every week, or you could join the SciShow Tangents Patreon and ask us on our Discord. Thank you to Sid, just a guy on Discord, at Solock Homes on YouTube, and everybody else who asked us your questions for this episode. If you like this show and you want to help us out, super easy to do that. First, you can go to patreon.com slash SciShow Tangents to become a patron, get access to things like our Discord and bonus episodes, maybe our Minions commentary, which might be being released quite soon. If it hasn't even already, I don't know when this episode's coming. Possible. Also, shout out to patron Les Aker for their support. Second, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That's super helpful, and it helps us know what you like about the show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell Tell people people about about us. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is created by all of us and produced by Jess Stempert. Our associate producer is Eve Schmidt. Our editor is Seth Glicksman. Our social media organizer is Julia buzz Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarty. Our sound designs by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our executive producers are Nicole Sweeney and me, Hank Green. And we couldn't make any of this, of course, without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. All around us, there are tiny, sometimes microscopic arachnids called mites. And certain species munch on the moldy rinds of aged wheels of cheese like Parmesan or the fungal veins in blue cheese. And you know you have an infestation of mites when you find dust around your cheese with a buildup of their exoskeletons, dead bodies, and of course, poop. So in many cases, cheesemakers try to protect their food from these pests. But at least two types of cheese are actually intentionally aged with a colony of mites. The French cheese Mimolette and the German cheese Mittelbenkasse, which translates to mite cheese. (laughs) That's the German way of naming stuff. (laughs) (laughs) These cheeses have a characteristic lemon-like flavor, and that comes from a compound that is secreted by the mites. Uh, from their abdominal glands. At least the flavor isn't from their poop, but realistically, you're probably going to be eating some of that too. Yeah, you're probably always eating. I'm probably eating it right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's not true that you eat a bunch of spiders every year, but it is true that you eat a bunch of mites every year. Like, it just seems like they're going to get in there. Spiders, George, is actually eating mites. (laughs) It's actually about arachnids this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, spiders, spiders, Gayer gets a lot of mites, but so do you. <laughs> <laughs> he just needs a normal amount. <laughs>